0: A book. the podcast where two guys tell you about the books that they're reading. I'm Rob Olson.
1: And I'm Livia Snedden. This episode we'll be discussing The Pale King by David Foster Wallace. Wallace is the author of novels Infinite Jest, The Broom of the System, and The Pale King, as well as Story Collections Girl with Curious Hair, Brief Interviews with Hideous Men, and Oblivion. Wallace also published a significant amount of nonfiction and contributed to a number of publications. Um, unfortunately, uh, David Foster Wallace committed suicide by hanging, um, in September of 2008, which left the book we'll be reviewing this evening, The Pale King, um, very unfinished.
0: And a little bit about that story, although since it's an unfinished book, uh, it's going to be really difficult to explain the story as it was kind of left, but the basic story uh explores the tedium of working for the irs in the mid 80s he essentially outlined a handful of characters and showcased the various various points of their life when they were younger when they were um, adults coming to or already working in the irs and some of the weird quirks about the individual characters and like i said because the story's unfinished it's difficult to say that there's your typical progression of a story from start you know, to the middle to the end. Uh, it looks like there was a lot of stuff that was developed, but uh, I think as, as we talk about it, you'll kind of get a better idea of what I mean.
1: Yeah, I agree. Story and even novel sometimes don't seem very fitting for this. Uh, the story kind of encompasses working at the IRS. And when I say story, it's much like we talked about in one of the previous books we reviewed, Sunset Park, it's it almost comes across as a lot of character vignettes because the tools or the straps that were needed to tie this whole story together were forthcoming, I'm assuming, from Mr. Wallace. And the the unfinished part of this book, it's not, I don't know, it's not like it's 500 pages and, man, he just never got around to writing those last 30 to finish it off. This is unfinished all throughout, there are a lot of things that aren't tied together very well, or tied together at all, and there are parts that pop up that that seem so disjointed and unattached to anything else in the book. It's it's, <laughs> I you know I don't even know what to say. I mean, I, I go back to who knows what this book could have been if it was completed, or even if it was just given proper direction. It doesn't seem. A lot of times when a book or a movie is unfinished, there's work that continues to go into it. It seems like the only editorial work that was done here was they took all of... It feels like they took everything they could find that could have been related and just slammed it all into one volume. So even referring to it as a story or novel is difficult for me at times because there is a, it's not even a lack of continuity. There's The continuity is non-existent.
0: Well, one thing that I'm going to reference that uh, at the back of the book there was a little section called Notes and Asides, and I'm assuming that and I could be wrong about this, I'm assuming these are it looks like it's essentially a bunch of notes that Wallace wrote to himself that are in places modified by the publisher making notes as well. And one of the things in, in one of the parts of the Notes and Asides he gives what he calls an embryonic outline, where he gives the broad arcs and stuff like that and plans. And one of the One of the little notes says, central deal, realism, monotony, plot a series of setups for stuff happening, but nothing actually happens. So I guess we're left to speculate whether it was intentional that there was all these different threads that were, were developed to a point and never went anywhere, or was it something that he was in the middle of working on and never got to the point where he could pull them all together. And again, I don't know if that particular note I'm looking at was from Wallace himself or from his uh, editor?
1: I think the note, I got the impression the note was from him. And, and yes, I can see where some of it was written that way. But he also, as you said, there's broad strokes that, that he describes there that could have made this far more interesting.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's, you know, the only way I can I can kind of explain it, it's like, there's no doubt that he's a genius author, okay? But what was published was such a work in progress. It, it's kind of like if you said... Hey, you know, there's this great sculptor, and I have his final work. It wasn't really finished, so I put it together. And what you have is like, you know, an unfinished leg and part of a foot and an arm with no torso, just kind of all jammed together. And that's how this book comes across. Like the main body of it is missing, the the, the flow of the story, which, and you know, there is no spoilers as far as this book goes, because it's unfinished and there isn't much of a story. But he talks about this. There are several characters that aren't just quirky. But that have supernatural abilities. Yeah. And they're very mild. There are no superheroes. And this one guy can levitate when he's concentrating really, really hard. And it's, you know, most people, no one's ever even noticed it, at least that they make mention in the book, that type of thing. Um, there's a reason. And as I'm thinking, it's kind of odd that all these people have these quirks. Well, one of the, the arcs that he discussed was that one of the higher ups in the IRS was specifically finding people with these abilities and bringing them together for a reason.
0: The arcs mentioned in the back of the book in the, in the notes,
1: right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that would have been had I have known that all along, I might have looked at those characters and felt differently about the story. Yeah. But I didn't. So it just seemed very strange that you know every other person that worked in this office. Uh, one of them is psychic, but only for bizarre like number-related facts that, that have no meaning in most cases. The There's the levitator. Help me out here. There's another one too that escapes is- my mind right now.
0: Supernatural stuff or just Mm -hmm. weird weird stuff in general. There's the fact psychic, like you said. There's the Mm -hmm. levitator. Well, I
1: know there's another one, but
0: there's the ghosts or the phantoms. Oh,
1: yeah, exactly. There's a ghost that um, (laughs) that talks to to um, IRS auditors, And, and you know, knowing afterwards that these people were all drawn together made it seem a little less strange that it just happened to be that all these people in the office had some type of quirk. And then there were other characters that didn't have one at all, so it was, I don't know. He had a direction in his mind of where he was going with this. The problem was it's like he was writing bits and pieces and not big parts of the story, and he was going to tie them all together at some point, and unfortunately he never
0: got around to it. Yeah, and the thing about that is <laughs> you're looking at a 500, almost 50 page book that, as Olivia said, was just bits and pieces, not a manuscript that was you know, even a majority finished. So I can only imagine what, you know, had he had time to complete the book, what that would have been like.
1: Well, yeah, and one of the notes I made said, you know, this could have easily been upwards of a thousand pages. But then again, there was his self-editorial process. So how many of those chapters would have survived in their entirety or may have been omitted at, you know, altogether either by him or by a an editing process that didn't just involve, hey, let's get this on the market as like I said, unfinished isn't even a fair word. It's, it's hodgepodge is what it comes out as. And that's not something I can blame the author for. I'll be really honest with you, and this is something I was going to talk about a little in my summation. I feel bad for David Foster Wallace, I mean, other than the fact that he's dead. I feel bad because I think that as an author of a very obvious genius in some of his writing, I think he would be embarrassed for this to be put out as a work of his the way it is now. And to uh, me it screams of the editor and you know some other people just trying to get their last few bucks out of the guy.
0: I don't know if I have the same opinion and actually that kind of touches on something that I was gonna mention, is that there's there's two different camps when it comes to this like type of work this of work of David Foster Wallace's caliber. Um, obviously very good literature, is um the way that academia looks at it or scholars and the way that you're casual reader looks at it and obviously I don't have, I'm not trained in any type of literature or literary criticism or anything like that and so my perspective is very much like, I, you know, I like to read books, I know what I like, I know what I don't like and so um, David Foster Wallace's style is more difficult for me because you know, it's like I'm also not a, a painter I can go to a museum and appreciate a painting but I don't appreciate necessarily the way that certain brushstrokes do this or use of light and shading stuff. I don't have the deeper appreciation or knowledge that a literary critic would. And so um, I think, and one of the things that I was upset about is practically every review that you you read or see about this book says it basically reinvented writing. And that's an exaggeration because I exaggerate, but... It's so glowing and, and, you know, everything's five stars and this is just brilliant and it's his best work and everything. And to the casual reader, I think that they would strongly disagree and I think it's a little bit of a disservice for, uh, you know, the New York Times book reviews and all these different places to say this is just a work of genius because any person who's just like, oh, I like a good book and this is getting really good reviews to pick this up might not appreciate it to the level that these you know, literary critics and scholars do
1: I agree with you, and you know we have to what percentage of readers are are the casual reader, and, I mean I'm not even talking like beach readers, but even like us, where I am, maybe we knock down forty books a year or something, I think it's a fairly small percentage that's the academia that's looking at this
0: exactly that's what I'm saying it's a disservice to the majority
1: well and i'm I am fully here to service the majority in my opinion on this book, so you know there's again there's no I, I can't argue that that the man is a genius writer because there are parts that just really, really shine. But he's also done some experimental things in this book. I think, and I say experimental because I haven't read any of his other stuff. For example, there are uh, there's a short there's a short chapter that's all about people turning pages and doing very, very mundane office stuff, and it reads something like this. This is ad libbed. Rob turned a page. Livius flipped a page back. Rob and Livius flipped to the next page simultaneously, but they sit across the aisle from one another. Bob folded a paperclip into a star, and this is like three pages of this, interlaced with a couple of little you know, secretive things to make sure you're paying attention. But it's, you know, and I'm, when I say pages, I read this on a reader, so maybe my pages are a little shorter than the hardcover. I, I don't know. But what it boils down to is, you know, three pages of very, very mundane office stuff Rob mentioned that in the novel, it's actually broken up into two columns, which again is kind of an experimental type of of writing to convey, you know, an idea on my reader came out as a flat page, so.
0: Yeah, the two columns thing, and that's exactly why I asked you when you got to that, whether it was laid out like that, the two columns thing to me, especially when you're looking at a two-page layout, you see four rows of words, so you're reading this very mundane worker bee kind of activity, and it's a bunch of people and compounding that is the fact that you've learned, you're have you looking at four rows, and you can almost imagine in your mind just row upon row of person doing this very repetitive, mundane work. It was one of the things that I really like about Wallace is that he uses the style of his writing to put you in the position of the people that he's writing about. And because he's writing about IRS workers and very, I mean, tedious, boring, just soul-sucking work, the book is very, very, very difficult to read and very, very boring in some places. Boring, I'm challenging or whatever. It's just, it's tedious to get through. And as much as it's not fun, I respect the fact that when he did that, the object was to get you to to feel that tedium and that, how it makes someone feel. And then he kind of interlaced it with these these clever little things that I, <laughs> I mean, I really drank the Kool-Aid for parts of this book, like where he, he put in this, this there was a, a class, like a college class, and, and uh, the TA at the end of, it was the final class of the year, and the TA was doing this big speech about, you know, going out in the world and everything, and he was saying that being able to do very boring things for a long amount of time was basically real hero, heroism, and it was this very uplifting thing about how the people that, that push through and do all this stuff are, are the real heroes, and so it kind of subconsciously, picked you up or built you up and you're like, yes, I can do this. Or at least that's how I felt.
1: There is, um, boring. And and I'm not saying this in a negative way. You are absolutely right. He managed to convey boring in some of the most unbelievable ways of a book (laughs) I've ever read. And, and, And the thing is, you're right. It was intentional. And I don't know that had he have wrapped the story up and put it together and had it come in at 750 pages, perhaps some of that would have been cut out, but he doesn't lull you into boredom. He hits you with a sledgehammer. Yeah. There are literally chapters that go on and on about tax code and auditing. There are chapters that go on for 3 or 4 pages of them where there's one paragraph, which is very exhausting to read or better yet, there are some instances where there are 3 to 4 pages where it's one sentence. I can really admire how difficult it must be to write a, a sentence that goes on for three pages and still have it maintain some type of structural integrity, which I'm sure that his sentences do. I didn't go back and break them down individually. It was just like breathless trying to read through them.
0: And uh, actually, that's kind of a signature of Wallace's. I think, with especially with Infinite Jest, that's one of the things he was known for was just having you know a, a sentence that goes on for pages. It's It's not a trademark, but it's definitely something he's known for.
1: Well, yeah, but I guess my point is this, it's impressive that he can do it. It's probably very difficult for him to do, but you know, it'd probably be kind of difficult for me to stick my toes in my mouth, but it'd probably be pretty impressive that I could pull it off, but nobody really wants to see it. And that's kind of how I felt about it as I sat back. And at first I was really annoyed with with the sentences that went on forever. And I actually went back and would look and be like, Oh, I have to flip back a page to see where the sentence started. And I thought, Oh, this is horrible. And I thought, but it's, pretty cool that he can do it and I start thinking there's lots of things that are cool that someone can do but they just don't need to be repeated over and over again Wow yeah so a right. couple couple minus minus points uh, on that a- another issue I was you're talking about just chapters that that you know explain tedium and boredom some of this and I was somehow misled or managed to mislead myself into believing that some of this was semi autobiographical maybe because there's a character in the book named David Foster Wallace. <laughs> and at some points he actually interjects and says, Hey author here. And here's like, you know, some stuff, which was some of the more interesting stuff in the book, by the way, it was one of the few sections that I really liked. And I kind of have a short list of things I liked about this book. Um, but his autobiographical stuff fell into that. That's more the book I wanted to read. Yeah. than the book I wound up reading. He, when he first gets to the IRS center that he's going to be working at in, in Illinois, it it has to go on for about 20 pages. It is literally a chapter that addresses nothing but poor parking lot design <laughs> and a sweaty guy in a car. And, yeah. and again, I mean it's it's not that, you know, it's not that he's lulled us into this, you know, his traffic jam, so to speak, trying to get into this place. It, like hits you in the head with it. And, and it gets to be like I could see if he did that once or twice in the book, but there are literally dozens of instances where we get it, David. We get it. It's boring. Taxes are boring. The <laughs> rest is boring. Okay, we've got it. Give us some story. Give us some in, some character interaction, something to to hold on to. And even in saying that, I actually have here in my notes, there's a couple, there's one section, and quite honestly, I didn't research this any, but apparently in 1977, according to the book, um, Illinois tried a progressive tax where it was based on um, the more you spent in a particular purchase, so say you went to the grocery store. If you spent under five dollars, you paid one, you know, and a half percent tax or whatever it was. And if you spent over ten dollars, it went up to three percent. If you spent over fifty dollars, it was six percent. And you know, you spent a couple of pages talking about that and the chaos it caused. That was a great section of the book. That was something I actually learned and didn't really like. Now, did that factually happen? I honestly have no idea. I was five in 1977. I didn't care enough to research <laughs> to see if it actually happened or not. <laughs> but so there were little tidbits in there that were interesting. But then, you know, I'm sure in the next chapter he went on to talk about 1040 forms and deductions for seven or eight pages.
0: But I mean, to be fair, and this is something that I've been fascinated with um, for a long time, is just the idea of how the thing, one thing that it's kind of a love hate thing I have with books is that they don't realistically reflect what's happening in life. And I mean, I know that's unrealistic for me to expect, but I thought it would be really cool if anybody ever pulled it off, like writing a book that, because my life personally is probably 80% boring and 20% interesting. And I think this book does, it was to me, it was like, um, it was like a, it was like something crazy was happening in a way where you're like, I just want to see how long this guy can do it. And I know that I, I, I have kind of a high threshold for, for boring to, to the extent where I remember, you're going to laugh at me about this. This is one of my <laughs> confessions that you're going to be like, let's cut this out. But um, one time when I was a teenager, I was flying from Chicago to Anchorage, Alaska. It's a six-hour flight. And just to see if I could, I managed to stare directly in front of me at the seat in front of me, not doing anything or moving, for four hours just to see if I could. And I did, four hours. So I'm fascinated by tedium, so I guess maybe I have a better threshold for this type of thing. But my point is, I think the parts of the book that are you know kind of focusing on that do a really good job of maybe representing how much of someone's life is actually worthy of writing about versus just kind of everyday Boring nonsense.
1: I I think that I sort of also have that ability because I'm pretty sure that one day I managed to stare at this book for four hours. (laughs) Just to see if I can do it while I flipped pages. (laughs) That's how I read the bulk of the book. Wow. Again, you know, I get what you're saying. And so he writes this book. (laughs) He writes this, he's putting together this story. And because of what we have now, we have to say things like, well, obviously it was just all about like, you know, how boring it is. Maybe. Okay. But let's take it for what it is. That's what this book gave us. It gave us you know, the boring existence of somebody who works for, for the IRS. So he set out to write a book that was really, really boring and put you in that really, really bored position. If I were to write a book and say I'm going to write a book that's going to be garbage, and I wrote a book that was going to be garbage, would that then make it a great book?
0: I'd say you definitely did what you set out to do.
1: Right. Well, in in that case, if that's what he wanted to do was to really bore people, he did so. In some cases, he was able to throw in some eloquence and some some very witty. He's a very witty guy. But he purposely wrote chapters that were so dry. As a matter of fact, and this is one of the notes I had of one of the things I actually liked, there's a section, and it's roughly mid-book, so maybe around 250 pages in, where he describes the very very tedious task of looking over numbers, you know, page after page of numbers and your mind wandering and I'm pretty sure he was kind of poking fun at himself and poking fun at us because that's exactly what you find yourself doing in those chapters that were like that. It's, you know, you're just staring at this page and you're kind of he talks about, you know, you're just looking at numbers and they don't mean anything anymore and the way he actually wrote it was he said you're reading and he said well, or in this case numbers yeah you know kind of i think almost implying that hey what you're doing right now is exactly what i'm talking about you're kind of glazing over this page and you're thinking about what you're going to have for lunch and everything else while the words just fly by you and i just caught you doing it
0: yeah and there's definitely like a thin membrane between the reader and and the story in that respect he's definitely def he's definitely playing with the fourth wall a lot but i think that was at least in parts his his goal
1: so, and I know we're not quite at the quote section. I don't want to include this in the quote section, but I did just mark one, and this is a very, very short sentence for, for, for David Foster Wallace that I'm going to read to you. <laughs> That's just kind of, um, kind of an example of the type of writing, and this is smack dab in the middle of a chapter where, it, like, every sentence is just like this. So I'm going to go here probably for about a minute and read you one sentence. He did another return. Again, the math squared, and there were no itemizations on 34A. And the printouts numbers for W-2 and 1099 and forms 2440 and 2441 appeared to square, and he filled out his codes for the middle trays 402 and signed his name and ID number that some part of him still refused to quite get memorized. So he had to unclip his badge and check it each time, and then stapled the 402 to the return and put the file in the top tier's rightmost tray for 402s out and refused to let himself count the number in the trays yet. And then the unbidden (laughs) came... The thought that boring also meant something that drilled in and made a hole. That's one sentence smack dab in the middle of the book, smack dab in the middle of a chapter that is filled with sentences that are exactly like that one.
0: He, I, I like that boring thing, exploring the idea that it has a different meaning. And he did that with, I think it was the young David Foster Wallace, right?
1: I believe. So he's uh, done it. He did it several times in the book where he actually addressed the word boring or the structure of the word boring.
0: Oh, I'm, I'm talking about something different. The one where... Oh, uh, sorry. It was the... I think I have a note about it somewhere. Oh. Um, there's a scene where this kind of wasteoid, he's, he uses the word wastoid kid, is um, he's talking about how he just kind of sits around and gets high and watches TV all day. And one of the TV shows he was watching was As the World Turns. And there was a moment where he's watching the TV and there was a that kind of moment before you cut to commercials or the moment before you get right back where it's the station addresses what you 're watching and it says you 're watching as the world turns, and it kicked off this little introspective or like epiphany in the in the character where he was he analyzed it as thinking you 're watching comma as the world turns as a saying instead of being out there with them you know being part of the world you 're just sitting and watching which led him to want to do something more with his life. And that's what sent him to the IRS recruiting center and on and on into the story. So I like the fact that he is so, I don't want to say careful, but thoughtful with words and their meanings and stuff like that. So as much as as much as much you use that to illustrate one of the really tedious parts of the book, um, I think it's also a really cool way to uh, con- show a contrast and, and shine a light on the meanings. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, A couple other good sections, and I don't remember if I mentioned this earlier or not. Um, He introduces a character, and this has got to be the third to last of 50 chapters or so. It's a long scene where there's two co-workers, an attractive woman and a kind of awkward man, Um, and they're in a bar, and it's just a conversation that winds up being about this woman and her screwed up life and how she got to be married to the guy she's married to. He introduces this character named Drinion, D-R-I-N-I-O-N, and he's just this intriguing character who Kind of through his lack of, say? I was going to say lack of social graces, but that's not true. He's kind of like this awkwardness or, or just a general lack of exposure to personal relationships. He basically doesn't seem to have had any personal relationships. Yeah. You know, kind of through his questions and his insight, like shows us this whole portrait of this woman by just the way he addresses the things that she says to him. And I thought that was really well written. And again, that's another story I wanted to read but these yeah. characters because of the unfinished format or even unstarted for like in every other character or most of the other characters, it seems like we got a glimpse of them when they were young right. and then we kind of come back to them later or vice versa. It, it seemed with these two characters, like there was a lot more there that there should have been some introductions to them that didn't happen. And again, this was something that was well-written, but probably through the editorial process, you you don't introduce characters and then go on to write a 35 page chapter on them and, at the very end of your book.
0: Yeah, it was definitely Which is more where a thought, section, yeah. yeah, like a section of a bigger story. And by far, I think that that Drenion character was the most likable of all of them in the entire book. And it's weird that you had to, not weird, but I guess maybe typical for this book, that you had to wait until 50 pages before the end to actually even meet him.
1: Yeah, and and I don't know that that's where we would have met him if Wallace himself had edited his own book or if he had finished this. I don't think that's the case. That section may have still appeared very late in the book, but we have, may have already known. As a contrast, there's a woman that at a point I think I was 400 plus pages in, and I actually had to ask Rob, who had finished. Well, he at that point he was just a little bit ahead of me, you know, 50 pages ahead of me or whatever. But you know, I said, you know, they mentioned this woman back probably in you know a little short chapter, 60, 75 pages in did I miss her? Is she somebody? And he says, Oh no, you'll get to meet her soon. And I'm thinking there's only like 70 pages left in the book. So we introduced a character, <laughs> just gave some background on her and then brought her back over 400 pages later. Yeah. Again, it seems like there should have been more like eventually either more of her story would have been written in at the 150 page, 200 page mark, or she would have been dropped from the story altogether through the editorial process. So again, unfinished isn't even fair. This was slapped together is the only way I can I can really say. So again, characters underdeveloped in most cases, and literally, I don't mean like you know he wrote the characters and just didn't get. He just didn't. The the parts that were developed that were supposed to develop them weren't there, and I feel confident that he would have developed these characters further had he have had the time to, to finish this book. One more thing that I mentioned is there's a chapter dealing with. Uh, and another one, it was a small section, but it was one of my, another one of my favorite sections of the book, of the very few favorite sections I had. He had this chapter that dealt with one of the characters, and then it, it was very Chuck Polinick. He's talking a lot about stigmata and people who have endured mm, yeah. insane things. You know, they quote about some guy who didn't eat for like two years or something crazy like that. But it reminded me very much of, of Chuck Polinick's writing. Another really good chapter, but again, a chapter that just didn't fit with the rest of the book. You know, again, it goes back to that whole, it's a series of very, very brief shorts and their interconnectedness all has to do with, and all these people will work in the IRS one day.
0: It's, you know, and I just, this is a thought that I had on the spot while you're talking about that. As you mentioned at the very beginning, his collection of writing only consists of three actual novels, one of them being The Pale King. Uh, and the other two are Infinite Jest, which is, you know, kind of his, uh, before The Pale King was, everybody kind of said it was his best work. And The Broom of the System, which actually I believe was what he wrote as his master's thesis. The only other, I mean, so there's, besides The Pale King, two novels that he wrote. Uh, three books were collections, and then just a ton of other stuff, like nonfiction and stuff like that. So I don't even know if, thinking about it, Just kind of the continuous novel is the medium that he even wanted to work in the most. It's just a thought. I don't know what to think about it, but.
1: I'm glad that you mentioned Infinite Jest because one of the other notes I was to mention that Time, the magazine Time, it included Infinite Jest in its all time 100 greatest novels list. Mm. And then in parentheses, it says covering the period 1923 to 2006. (laughs) So it's the all time 100 greatest novels, but just between those years. (laughs) So, I mean, that goes to say, and I'm sure Time is a fairly credible source. I'm not, I don't know what they do as far as book reviews, but you know, that definitely does have the, the, the hammer of the you know, book reviewer behind it. Time says you're one of the 100 greatest novels. So, yeah, very well-respected author, and, and for good reason in some cases. And you know, I'll fault him for what I'll fault him for, you know, run-on sentences, run-on paragraphs, way too many pages if they would have all been included on the boredom. But there's some really genius stuff in there, too. I mean, there's some really some really great quotes. Um, unfortunately, most of them are two and a half pages long, so I, I don't want I, I to read all of them to you. <laughs> <laughs> but there's very, very obviously genius at play there, and sadly, you know, he had some personal problems and, you know, bouts of depression that he suffered over 20 years, and apparently he decided to, uh, at his doctor's request, to go off his medication, and, you know, a great author, no longer with us. So left us with uh with a book that sadly is unfinished It could have really been a great novel had it had gone through all of its steps.
0: You just mentioned quotes. Do you have any you want to throw out there? Because I have a few.
1: Um, why don't you get started while I find the one that I want to do?
0: Okay. There are a, there's there's more quotes that I wrote down than I'm actually gonna share. But right off the bat, I think within the first fifteen pages or so I'm
1: actually really looking forward to this because I remember the first 15 pages and, and wondering if it was too late to, uh, to record a retraction on what we're going to be reading next.
0: <laughs> so, this first quote has to do with the character, Sylvan Shine, who he's flying from Midway Airport to Peoria to start his new assignment at the IRS center in Peoria. And During his flight, he thinks about a lot of things, but one of the things that's heavily on his mind is the CPA exam, which he wants to take. And I think this is just kind of a reflection that he was thinking to himself. And it goes, the entire ballgame, in terms of both the exam and life, was what you gave attention to versus what you willed yourself to not. I like that because it uh, kind of ties into the themes of paying attention to things and and what really matters in life, which are big in, in the book. This next quote, I just thought it was a really great use of words, and I'm not going to set it up, but I think it's an example of the kind of high-level thinking that he throws into the book, and it's well-written, but it's very, very dense. So, as Dr. Laurel had explained it, entropy was a measure of a certain type of information that there was no point in knowing. Laurel's axiom was that the definitive test of the efficiency of any organization structure was information and the filtering and dissemination of information real entropy has zippo to do with temperature that's just uh I don't know <laughs> you could tell that the, some of the stuff that went into this book he spent a lot of time thinking about and probably writing and rewriting and rewriting
1: yeah, I mean unfortunately, I did have some I decided that. I was going to put down some quotes and I had some technical difficulties with the the reader medium I was using. And to make a long story short, I had to do a factory reset on my reader and lost all of my um, bookmarked quotes. So Mm -hmm. I I knew Rob would more than cover me with with the amount that he would have. And uh, I'm not kidding when I say that I won't read some because some of them are really, really long. I'm going to read this one. It's kind of medium long. There's no setup really needed. In short, not only was it surprising to be greeted in person with such enthusiastic words, but it was doubly surprising when the person reciting these words displayed the same kind of disengagement as, say, the checkout clerk, who utters the words, Have a nice day, while her expression indicates that it's really a matter of total indifference to her whether you drop dead in the parking lot outside (laughs) ten seconds from now.
0: I loved that quote, and I was actually going to take that one down, so I'm glad you did. This next one is the teaching assistant in a class on the final day of class is talking about heroism and he says gentlemen, here's a truth enduring tedium over real time in a confined space is what real courage is such endurance is as it happens, the distillate of what is today in this world, neither you nor I have made heroism, true heroism
1: and that whole section where, where he talks about heroism <laughs> a guy I used to work with and <laughs> the whole thing used to just remind me of, he used to say, you know what, anybody can have sex with a good-looking girl. And that's just what that reminded me of, that like a, a way to make really tedious jobs seem heroic, it was kind of, you know, you get the idea.
0: <laughs> this quote it deals with the character David Foster Wallace's bus ride down to Peoria. The sun began shortly to broil the bus's rear and port sides. The air conditioning was more like a vague gesture toward the abstract idea of air conditioning. The bus had a lavatory in the way back rear, which nobody ever made any attempt to use. And I remember consciously deciding to trust that the passengers had good reason for not using it instead of venturing in and discovering that reason for myself. Empiricism has its limits.
1: And that's why, because that's another one that I I remember very specifically reading. And again, some of the best written parts of the book were his autobiographical or... I keep saying that, but I guess they weren't autobiographical. Well, the ones he wrote in an autobiographical fashion. For um, sure. Very clever and witty.
0: Uh, I have another quote, actually, that deals with David Foster Wallace's actual arrival at the uh, the center in a different part that goes... One figured that there couldn't possibly be this many new arriving and or reassigned transfers to the regional exam center as a typical daily thing, or else the d- disembarkation and check-in system would be much more permanent looking and streamlined and less like some small-scale reenactment of the fall of Saigon.
1: Yes, that is that is one sentence
0: of about 25 pages where he goes <laughs> on about the trip from the bus depot to the actual to getting into the building yeah was seriously 30 pages and then this is all almost chronological um again another and this kind of proves livia's point that uh some of the best written stuff was with the david foster wallace character this is when he's waiting in line for something and uh is getting kind of the stink eye from a secretary he describes the secretary she was maybe 50 and very thin and tendony and had the same asymmetrical beehive coiffure as two different older females in my own family, and was made up like an embalmed clown, the stuff of nightmares.
1: Again, you know, and I said this to some other people, I like, that's the story I want to read. I don't know (laughs) about all the rest of this stuff. That that was the book I was hoping for, and instead I I got The Pale King.
0: All right, on that note, let's uh, wrap this up. Want to give it some stars really quick, Liv? And then I'll give my two cents.
1: Oh you know this is gonna be really hard to say because I can't give it stars plural this time. Here's where it's at. based on what we kind of quietly agreed to the good scale for the star system, it, it's a one star book. I didn't like it. Although there were parts of it I liked overall I felt you know there's some great writing in there. but there were some really really long chapters that could have been streamlined or we could have been a little less a little less blunt. Like I said, he hits you with boredom like, like he uses a train, like a villain in an old movie. Although there's genius there, I, just, we, I had to muddle through way, way, way too much garbage to get to it. I don't want to blame David Foster Wallace for this, as I said earlier. In a way, I feel bad for him because I feel that if he sat down and read this book and thought, oh my God, this is what was actually published under my name, and I know Rob disagrees with me, I would hope that he'd be disappointed because there's very obvious talent there. And I just don't think that the editors and the publishers did a fair job of of showing us that or showcasing it properly. I don't know that it's right to have rewritten parts of that or to have written an ending or put some more structure to it or not. I don't know what the, you know, what the moral thing to do is with a dead man's writing. But I don't see it as as what they put out here. So again, no blame to David Foster Wallace for, you know, anything other than what I've mentioned. I, I still think this could have you know, would it have been a five star book for me? No, probably not. I don't think so, no matter what happened. You know, could it have been three or four? Sure. But sadly enough, this is going to be my, uh, my first one star review on here. It's actually my first one star, I think, Goodreads review altogether.
0: All right. Uh, kind of a refreshing situation. Um, we made it six episodes without having a real stark disagreement on a book. And uh, this time we do. Uh, there's a couple of things that I want to say just in general about the book. First of all, They made it very clear going in that this was a book that was not complete, and it was a book that they had a lot of material for, and they put together as best that they felt they could. So that gets a lot of credit from me. There was no illusions to the fact that this was going to be a complete book, a complete story. They just wanted the genius that was in this book to be available to David Foster Wallace fans. So... That's definitely going to pad my vote a little bit. And the other thing I want to mention is that some of the stuff in this book is just so profoundly well-written that this is a book, I don't know, that I feel was probably a third, maybe a half complete, especially knowing, I guess, that Dave Foster Wallace was such a perfectionist about his writing. I've read that a lot. The book, as it stands, feels incomplete and everything, because it is, but some of the stuff that's in there is so much better written than books that I've read that are, you know, have gone through a full editorial process and are um, start to finish complete books. So, I mean, just a lot of the writing in here just outshines authors by far things that they'll ever be able to write. So I'm just really taken by that. And again, that will pad my review. Overall, the book is very disjointed. It's not complete. It's got a lot of really well-developed stuff, but it leaves you unsatisfied, I will say that. And another thing is, it's very, very difficult to get through. I would never, ever, ever recommend that anybody read this as their first David Foster Wallace book, because they would basically <laughs> throw it down and run away screaming.
1: <laughs> it's funny, because I really thought you were going with my theory, which is, I would never, ever recommend this book to anybody.
0: I will recommend it to people, Um basically david foster wallace fans especially people who read infinite and liked it a lot because um, i think that and i haven't read it so i don't know for sure but i feel like there is probably a lot of similar use of writing style and experimentation and stuff like that so overall i thought the book was really brilliantly written i thought that a lot of the things that he did lesser authors would not be able to pull off he really Uh, Well, he did make me imagine in my head what these people were doing, but he also made me feel like I was right there with them, which is something that barely anybody can do, and I have to give him a ton of credit and admiration for that. So, all that being said, it's going 3.5. I want to say that the stuff that I read was brilliant. I thought he did a great job of really pulling you in and making you feel what he wanted to write about instead of just making you understand what happened to these characters. So, three and a half stars, I think it easily could have been four and a half if it was a polished and completed manuscript at the time that Wallace uh, killed himself
1: I'm really surprised you went that low and I'm, I'm not trying to be funny just you know we had conversations and one of these says let's not talk a lot about this book let's just do it on the podcast and With a lot of the other books we've read, we're kind of very in sync with what we thought about them. So we'd have conversations throughout the reading of the book and stuff. But um, this one, we didn't do quite as much of that. I, I think we both knew from the first 50 pages or so which direction this was going in. And, you know, back to what you said. Yes, I know it was unfinished. I know they said it was unfinished, but there was an option to not put this out there. But no, I'm surprised that you didn't go higher than that. I, I really thought you were going to put this at four or four and a half stars the way it stood. So <laughs> I'm, I'm actually kind of pleased that you you, know, you at least did take into consideration that it is treated as the work as a whole, regardless of its unfinished status or not. i yeah, to be fair. I have the rare word snob minute, I think, this time. Go for it. Uh, I'd never heard this saying before but boy, I'm never going to forget it because like everything else in the book, it was uh, shoved down my throat every few pages, it seemed like. Using the term squeezed your shoes (laughs) to talk about somebody giving you a hard time about something, so squeezed my shoes, or he was always squeezing my shoes, or you don't want to get your shoes squeezed or something, it had to appear probably 20 plus times in the book.
0: It was probably one of the most consistent things about the book.
1: Yeah, yeah, and the odd thing is At first I thought, you know, I'm not going to call him out on this because it's the David Foster Wallace character that says it repeatedly. And then as I got later into the book, I realized there were at least two other characters that also said it that had no connection to David Foster Wallace, at least that I could see from the book, just other people, but nobody that he necessarily interacted with. So they weren't friends or family members of his that were using it, as happens in social circles that everyone kind of says the same, you know, the same clever thing. So that's my, uh, for my Word Stop Minute, Squeeze My Shoes. That's how I feel about this book. This book just squeezed my shoes for two (laughs) weeks of my life to get through it.
0: Very good. I did notice that too, and it didn't come up to me to actually call him out on that, but now that you mention it, yes, it was probably the most consistent thing in the book was the use of the very, very rare or maybe even just he made up phrase, squeezing your shoes.
1: Did you have some other read-also books we'll call your sections? It's I think we've mentioned this before on our notes that we share for this. It's it's the sections actually we call it "read this, not that," which isn't necessarily true because when we like a book, we give you some other things you could read. Right. Um. In addition to, so I think for Rob, this section will be the "read this also," and then mine will just keep as "read this, not that." (laughs) So
0: for me, I would really just recommend. I think maybe read before would be a better recommendation, and that would be definitely other david foster wallace stuff don't start with the pale king because i think it's just too unfinished to to be a good introduction to him
1: okay my um read this what i'm gonna tell you not that what we just talked about um max berry also deals with the quirkiness of people does it in a much more tongue-in-cheek kind of way Um, um specifically the book company which um just surrounds this Office. If you've ever worked in a cubicle or any type of office setting, I think it's something you could appreciate. Uh, It's a series of the higher ups trying to do things differently and all the goofy things that ensue. Also, you could read Syrup or Jennifer Government, which is the first book I read by Max Berry. Again, you know, he kind of looks at society and what's going on in society, but his characters are fairly quirky. Uh, much like the characters in The Pale King, only the book is very funny, and they are actually all three of those books, complete start to finish books. <laughs> My other small one is, and this is, I'm saying this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but, or even read some Kurt Vonnegut, who uh. also deals with the, but again, also deals with the quirky relationships and the quirkiness of characters, so if that's one of the things that you like that we discussed about Pale King, it was in some ways some of the things I liked were some of the character you know, again, vignettes that that he presented, but yeah, again, with the rest of these guys, the one advantage they have is they have a complete book that's gone through a complete editorial process, be it their own or their editors. So I'm going to Max Berry and Kurt Vonnegut this week.
0: Oh, I'm going to resist the temptation to think that you did that on purpose. But that is a very good point because Vonnegut does deal very consistently with the human condition in general and specifically the kind of not so great parts of life. So good, good insight. I don't know how I missed that. I was too focused on... And I didn't, I didn't I didn't do it you. on
1: purpose. I actually was specifically going to go second in case you brought up Vonnegut, just so I could. <laughs> and then I would say, you know, I actually also thought of that, but I wasn't going to, you know, bring it up as <laughs> one of my. Max Berry is really
0: why I'd pegged for this. So great. All right. You got a shout out this week? I do have. I have a shout out that um, it's an unexpected shout out. It's a, a ninja shout out almost. This thing just kind of fell in my lap. And I'm sure that have you not had you not heard about it yet? You will very soon because it's this viral kind of sensation. So I was sitting at work during the week doing my very tedious and boring human resources job, and
1: oh, oh please go on for half an
0: hour explaining that to us. <laughs> and my boss sends me this email and says, "Hey, you know, I, I know your brother has uh, a young kid; he'll probably like this." And I open it up, and it's this PDF of a. Children's book called Go the Fuck to Sleep. And it's by Adam Mansbach. Mansbach. The thing, the reason that I'm going to give it a shout out is I read it. Uh, actually, we gathered everybody in HR around, which is really funny because the title of the book is Go the Fuck to Sleep. And one of my coworkers read it out loud <laughs> to all of us, and we were laughing along to it. It's basically this children's book for adults, I guess is how it's described. And it's a it's a children's book. It's illustrated and everything, and it's about you know, the situation that every parent comes across where the kid just won't go to sleep and the frustration that they feel. Anyway, quick little, I think, 32-page children's book that, from what I understand, started out somehow, that a PDF started circulating around and went viral to the point where practically like everybody who has an email account probably received this and... I don't really understand exactly what this means, but I read this in an article that it hit number one on Amazon over a month before it's released because it's due to be released, I think, sometime in June. It Uh, is the
1: middle of June.
0: So I don't understand how it can be number one on Amazon if it's not being sold.
1: They, um, you can pre-order on Amazon. Uh, so there are frequently books that, um, close to release date, um, show up on the best-selling portion of that. I don't know necessarily how often that happens to number one, but because you can pre-order books, um, even that, Kindle books, you can pre-order that. Yes. That counts um, as a sale. It does because it's paid for and they just ship it to you the day you get it. By the way, it's pretty cool. Cause Amazon, if they lower the price and you've pre-ordered a book, will credit you um, back the amount of money. Uh, so let's say you Ordered it really early and it was twenty bucks, but they, you know, they ran it on you know at release date at twelve dollars. You will actually get it for the twelve dollars price.
0: So my notes on this was, I mean, I read it and it was a funny little two minutes of my life, and it will be forgotten quickly. So I think it's a flame that will burn bright and fast. That I think it's going to be something maybe people talk about for the next couple of weeks and then. Uh, it'll just be a funny little gag gift or something they give to each other.
1: They'll talk to it for the next few weeks, and then it'll actually be available for sale.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it'll it'll reach the peak of its popularity before it's actually available. I think that a it's a it's it's a testament to how um, these kind of viral not campaigns but these situations where something goes viral can really launch something into the public public eye because I from what I read. I think it maybe even was in talks for a film deal or some sort of movie rights with Fox. So they're really grabbing onto it, and I hope that this kind of shines more light on e-books and the idea of e-readers and availability and cheapness of reading stuff electronically as opposed to in print. So that's my shout-out. It's go the fuck to sleep by Adam Mansbach, or Mansbach, I don't know exactly how to say it. It's, evi- <laughs> it's available eventually <laughs> on Amazon, I think sometime in mid-June. But I'm sure that you probably already have it in your... Check your spam, because it's probably in there, and it's a quick, fun, two-minute read.
1: Incidentally, another thing I noticed when I did look this book up on Amazon, which I heard of, not from Rob, so to speak for its virality I'm sure that's a word. <laughs> virality? Um, virality, <laughs> sure, virality. Yeah, it comes out in June for eight ninety nine, give or take, for the hardcover copy. Or in October, it'll be available for the Kindle for about sixty cents less. Which is one of the things we've talked about here is that you know you shouldn't necessarily pay as much for a digital version as you do for um, for the actual hard copy. So um, yeah, check it out. I haven't seen it yet because it's just against my religion to to read books that are pirated and they come out long before their uh, their due date.
0: Of course, naturally. Of
1: course, yeah. So um, I haven't checked it out yet, but I will be once I obtain my copy in June when it comes out. Great. Uh, Speaking of books that are coming out or that have come out, our next read, In the Garden of Beasts, Love, Terror, and An American Family in Hitler's Berlin. That's the actual title. The book's by Eric Larson. Probably best known for, actually, I'm going to let Rob take over here (laughs) because I'm... Because I know I started this book, but I don't know if I ever finished it. So I'll let you talk a little bit about it.
0: Yeah, I think we're continuing the trend of just doing things that we already know aren't the best idea. Much like in the beginning where we started reading books that were like not the first in the series. We're going on to another author who's kind of known for his books being long, slow reads. Uh, Eric Larson, I read Devil in the White City, which is, for anybody who hasn't read it or doesn't know about it, it's a book that is about... Uh, the World's Fair in the 1890s in Chicago. It kind of runs two different storylines. There's a storyline about uh, the architects involved in creating the World's Fair and just Chicago architects in general who are now considered world-class architects. And the other storyline is about H.H. Uh, H. H. Holmes, which was the serial killer who was living in Chicago at the time of the World's Fair and I think posing as dentist, who would use his dental practice? If I remember correctly, I read the book like five years ago. To get victims that you would kill, so historical fiction—it's true. Uh, It's—I think it's based. It's one of those based on a true story, but obviously embellished or however you want to say it—to be a, a historical fiction piece. But very slow-building book. It didn't start out really fast, but as as it went, it kind of built and everything, and it's very, very interesting, but uh, a tough read. A lot about the architecture of Chicago which can be kind of a dry subject but it's also very fascinating from a historical perspective and uh, I actually learned a lot and then later on when I have after reading the book would go to uh, you know museums in Chicago and see some of the architectural and not artifacts but things that they had on display from that time period it was very gratifying to have read the book and and learned a little bit about the history of Chicago architects so uh, the long-winded way of saying Eric Larson's Devil in the White City was another incredibly good book that was very difficult to read in points, uh, but in, in the long run, I found it worthwhile.
1: Yeah, As I as I mentioned earlier, Rob suggested I read this book, and I said, I know I started it, and I don't remember how I finished it, but after <laughs> listening to you, I'm sure that I didn't finish it, and I probably got about 30 or 40 pages in and quit. But now, what I found out this past week is that um, once you're doing book reviews, you actually have to read the whole book, so... There are no more 30-page books for me where I just drop something like The Pale King and go, I don't want to read this anymore. I actually have to power through to the end.
0: You're responsible to your listeners now.
1: Yep. So uh, speaking of listeners, let me tell you where you guys can get a hold of us at. Hopefully you've heard this on BookedPodcast.com, our website. If you haven't, check it out. Um, You can hit us up on Twitter at BookedPodcast. You can email us, BookedPodcast at gmail.com. And iTunes, we're booked podcast. So subscribe, comment. You know, let us know what you think—good, bad, or indifferent. If you think I'm insane about David Foster Wallace, throw a comment on the board. You know, record your own podcast and send me a link. I'd be more than happy to listen to it.
0: <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, I think that just about does it for booked this week. I'm Rob Olson,
1: and I'm Livia Snedden. Keep reading.
0: Good job, sir. <sighs> Our hands gripping each other tight You keep my
1: secrets, hope to die